How is this for a big, complicated question? What is truth? Or maybe another way to uh, think about it is, how many different kinds of truths are there? And what are the ways in which we can both use and misuse truth or various kinds of truth for various ends? All of that and more is explored in an endlessly fascinating book called Truth, How the Many Sides to Every Story Shape Our Reality. The uh, author of the book is Hector MacDonald, who has uh, consulted with uh, all kinds of different business leaders in various industries and uh, has been the author of a number of a book a number of different books including several different novels this book is a very very intriguing look at how we think of truth itself typically in very simplistic terms when in fact truth in and of itself is very very complicated and by understanding the different kinds of truths that there are we also can be, in a sense, wiser consumers of truth and also uh, more effective utilizers of truth in our daily lives, uh, both personally and professionally. Um, I've found the book just incredibly interesting, and uh, I'm happy to have this opportunity to speak with its author, uh, Hector McDonald. The book is published by Little Brown and Company. Hector McDonald, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks very much, Craig. It's great to be here. Uh, I want to ask you briefly about one line in your biography, which says that you are an expert in business storytelling. Can you explain to our listeners what that means and uh, what connection, if any, that there is between that professional exploit of yours and the topic of this book? Absolutely. So I, I, I began my professional career as a regular strategy consultant, the kind of... Um, the kind of person that companies invite in uh, to help them decide what they should be doing for the next five, ten years. Um, but as you mentioned, I've in the meantime been writing a few other books, um, fiction novels, and I wanted to see if I could combine the you know my interests in writing, in communication, with the the business strategy I was doing. And I came across this extraordinary. Um, new area of business internal communications um, around narrative, using story forms to help organizations explain, usually to their own people, what it is they're trying to do and where they're trying to go. So just to give a, a simple example, a, a corporation that finds itself in, for example, a, a difficult competitive environment, or they need to make a big transformation to um, to adopt new technologies or comply with new regulations, uh, or perhaps they've gone through a merger, um, they need to set out for their, for their thousands and thousands of employees the, the various strategic reasons why they're making these changes and what they're asking their employees to do differently as a result. Um, and that has traditionally been done through quite sort of dull and, and, and often painful communication processes. We found that turning it into a story, which is, is not to minimize the seriousness of it, but to turn it into a structure where we proceed from A to B through a logical series of steps uh, that have perhaps an emotional component to them to, you know, to get people interested in it, um, is a much more powerful way of engaging often thousands of employees at a time and getting them involved and getting them supportive of the big changes the company needs to make. So, so that's, that's, in a nutshell, what the kind of storytelling work is I do. Uh, for companies like DuPont and Pfizer and Barclays. 
Um, and how that led to the book, well, I, when you come to write a story for a, a business of that complexity, you interview all the chief executive and their team, um, you, you read endless documents, pour through data, you just are confronted with vast amounts of facts and information about that business, which you then need to distill down to just a few lines, essentially, that make up that simple narrative of what the, what the company is doing, where it's going, and, and what, the, what the people in that organization need to do. And the choice that you make in terms of picking from all those thousands, millions of facts, you know, the, the, the 30 or so that you're going to privilege in this story, got me thinking about how one could easily choose a different set of, 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 of facts and, and come up with a completely different story that would give a different impression of reality. And that really got me thinking about the flexibility of truth, not only in business, but in many other forms of life, mm. and how it can be used for positive ways like that, but also potentially for very misleading ways as well. Right. It brings to mind, of course, the way in which you are using the word truth and the fact that your use of the word truth is going to be contrary uh, to those who think of truth as nothing but factual truth, uh, the facts and nothing but the facts. And you tell us that, in fact, it, it's in a sense more valuable to think of truth in a sense in a little richer and more flexible way. And I'm, I'm very uh, intrigued by a couple of the examples that you give of how Truth is sometimes uh, beyond just the facts themselves uh, that can involve elements of, uh, for instance, uh, making a prediction or making a subjective judgment. Uh, give, give an example for our listeners that, that, that will help them understand how truth is sometimes more than just cold, hard, undeniable facts. That's right. So I, I, I spend quite a bit of time looking at fact-based truth in the first part of the book but then as you say go on and, and, and look at those statements we make which aren't fact-based and yet we wouldn't say they're falsehoods or lies so these are things like moral judgments uh, it's wrong to kill I think is something that many of your listeners would agree is probably true um, in almost all cases we would consider that a truth but it's not a fact it's 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 a it's a it's a moral judgment that our society has come to and that I think most of us agree with Similarly, um, a lot of the ways in which we use language, for example, are what I call artificial truths, so definitions that we give to words, uh, which, of course, is incredibly important if you're communicating because clever communicators can do very dodgy things with the definitions of the words they use. Um, those, are, those, are, those are truths that we create as a society, and that they and they evolve over time, and, and we can change them if we want to. And a good example of that was uh, Bill Clinton, of course, being very um, um, uh, cunning with his definition of the word sex and sexual relations in the Monica Lewinsky affair. Um, technically speaking, he was speaking the truth because the definition that, that his lawyers had managed to get the court to accept of the word sex did not include certain actions that he was he was admitting to um so but of course most of the rest of the world didn't agree with his version of, of definition of the word sex and then you mentioned predictions well a lot of the work i do with businesses is looking into the future saying where is this business going what are they going to achieve what are they going to try and do now these are not facts because they haven't happened yet and yet we act on such predictions as if they are facts if they're fairly reliable you know confident predictions we 
we we invest millions of dollars. We, um, you know, if it's in our personal lives, we book churches and wedding caterers and buy strollers and baby clothes and all these things based on our predictions of stuff that's about to happen. And if we didn't act on those predictions, then you know a lot of a lot of a lot of things would go wrong, and a lot of um, important things would go you know go unachieved. Um, and yet, of course we can't call them facts until they happen. So that's why I thought it was important to look at things that we act on as if they're true, but aren't necessarily confirmed factual truths at this stage. Right. One of my favorite examples in your book is when you say if, if you were in a crowded building and, a, and, a, uh, and a, a, a building engineer suddenly stood up and said, this building is about to collapse, uh, you, would, you would get out of there as fast as you could. I mean, believing him giving authority to his words and treating them as if they are true. And in fact, as you said, there, there's no way to be absolutely certain. But uh, exactly. but for all intents exactly. and purposes, that is complete truth being spoken in that moment. And we act upon it as if it is absolutely true. And we're foolish if we That's don't. Exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So so it's it's too simplistic to say the only stuff that's true is provable fact, like, you know, the boiling point of water or two plus two equals four. These, these are logical scientific truths, but there's a lot of other truths out there that we accept and, and, and use every day, act on every day as if they are completely true, even mm. though they're not fact. Right. And uh, at, at one point you say uh, truth comes in many forms. Uh, there are competing truths. And you say our choice of truth uh, has so much to do with, first of all, how we influence others and, and also the way in which we ourselves are, are influenced. And, uh, and then you go on in your book to explore different kinds of truths beyond uh, simple factual truth. And of course, even factual truth itself can be not a simple thing at all, but uh, beyond factual truth are these other kinds of truths. I want to make sure that we spend plenty of time exploring partial truths, because I think you really uh, help us understand, first of all, how often this happens, how in fact just about all of the things that we think of as undeniable factual truths are in fact only partial truths. And uh, you you give some interesting uh, examples of this, one involving something as simple as an egg and another involving something as simple as just looking out the window. To, uh, to underscore the complexity of all that is around us. Uh, explain to our listeners what I'm talking about. Okay, so we're coming back to factual truths here. And this is, this is trying to explain that even when we're in the domain of fact, nothing is that straightforward. So if you look out of your window, um, the chances are that you're going to see maybe some trees out there, but you might also see a line of cars. You might also see some manhole covers in the street. You might see some dogs. Now, Different people will notice different aspects of their view. I'm looking out my window right now in, in London, in England, and the things I'm seeing are things like the skylights on the roofs of the houses opposite me. But what I'm not really noticing is, until I start looking more carefully, is, oh, there's a barbecue on someone's balcony over there, and there's a, there's a hose pipe wrapped up over there. Um, if I was interested in drain pipes, I could start to count how many drain pipes I could see. But, of course, you you don't see that stuff unless you're looking for it. So different people looking out of this window will see completely different things, and they will will have a different impression of their world to me. 
And I, I liken this to the, the, the old story, which uh, I'm sure many people are familiar with, of the, the blind men confronting or discovering an elephant. And, of course, the person who touches the uh, trunk of the elephant thinks it's like, a, like a, a, a pipe, and the person who touches the ear thinks it's like a fan, and the person who, thinks it, who touches a, a leg thinks it's like a tree. This is really how we need to look at fact. It's often so complex, even the simplest things, like the view out of my window, so complex that, that we only ever get a, a fleeting glimpse of it, a fragment of, of the, the whole truth, as, as we say. Right. And, of course, what we're talking about is uh, the idea that this can be, can be done, in, this, in a sense, with the best of intentions and, and then sometimes with uh, the worst of intentions. Uh, partial truths can be put forth in which one has been... Uh, in a sense, very premeditatively selective in what truths to include and what truths to discard for the sake of making one's point or to convince someone else of, of, of your uh, viewpoint. Exactly. I give one very simple example um, in the book of a caption of a, that was under the photograph of a former cabinet minister in, in, in Britain, uh, in the Times, so it's one of our most respected newspapers, and they, they had this picture of this very senior politician, and under it it said that this, this individual had supported uh, a particular set of um, subsidies for, for biofuels, which were quite controversial and which the whole newspaper's article was of, against. And it said in the same caption, this man was jailed for, um, you know, uh, was sent to jail for six months in 2013. And the combination of these two facts, both of which were true, implied somehow that he was jailed for, um, you know, his, for his energy policy, for, for this, this, this apparently corrupt thing he was doing with, with biofuels. But, of course, he wasn't. He was sent to jail for lying about a speeding offense in his car. Um, <laughs> so they were completely unrelated facts. They were both true. But the newspaper had chosen to put these unrelated facts together in a way that, that cast, you know, all kinds of prejudice on the energy policy that it was condemning. Mm. This is as good a time as any to uh, to draw in a, an interesting point you make in the in the foreword of the book about the three types, or or I'm not sure this is the only three, but three important types of communicators that we encounter all of the time, advocates, misinformers, and misleaders. And, of course, I think what you're talking about here is three brands of communication in which the manipulation of truth and the careful choice of certain truths uh, is, is really essential. Uh, can you just quickly spell out the difference between these three? Sure, and I'm not suggesting that there's some kind of taxonomy that, that you know, all of us are one of these three. Um, they're more like uh, roles that we may slip into as professional or amateur communicators at any one time. So an advocate is essentially a person who's trying to use selective forms of the truth for positive, constructive means, presenting a, a relatively accurate, fair portrayal of the whole picture, but you know, by, by choosing selective parts of it. Um, a misleader is sort of the opposite. It's, it, that's the person who is deliberately drawing on partial truths or you know, selective aspects of the truth in order to give their audience 
a false impression of reality in order to mislead us. And in between those two, in between the kind of the saint and the devil, if you like, I, I had this third category, which I've called misinformer. And that's, that's a really interesting role, because it's, it's, a, it's a thing that a lot of us are falling into, particularly on social media, where we, we think we're, we know what's going on. And so we share some piece of news or we communicate something to our friends, which spreads a, 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 a false impression of reality, but not, you know, not through our intending to do so. We've just misunderstood the data. We've misunderstood some, some key messages we've seen. Um, and I give a couple of examples in the book of, of people doing that. For example, the New York Times, when it reported a few years ago that uh, left-handers um, are likely to die nine years younger than right-handers, now, this is nonsense, and the New York Times almost certainly realized it later on, but they wrote this article based on a, a um, piece of statistical analysis done in California in the 90s, which uh, used accurate data but, but misinterpreted that data to come up with this bizarre conclusion that being left-handed was more dangerous than smoking, effectively. Um, and so no one was deliberately trying to mislead anyone, but they were using true data to misinform people because they had led, they had drawn the wrong interpretation from it. Right. I'm thinking uh, as a very recent example, and I don't know how closely you have followed this story, but uh, the the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, that occurred several weeks ago, yeah. on, for yeah. instance, social media, widely disseminated, was a picture purported to show uh, one of the the young people speaking out on the issue of gun control, supposedly. Uh, tearing up a copy of the U.S. Constitution. And that was a falsehood. That was an absolute falsehood. Uh, it was a doctored photograph. Uh, and uh, I suppose that would be a misleader who uh, is uh, trying to convey that. But then you have a whole army of misinformers who are passing on that uh, what I would call an untruth uh, and and, and uh, not not necessarily even fully understanding what they were doing or the kind of choice that they were making in that moment. And it, it's a real problem now, with particularly with social media, because we're all publishers. We're all mini publishers, and we're not, you know, we're not kind of gatekeepers. We're just we're not equipped to assess really professionally the quality and the accuracy of the information we're we're seeing. We just click like or, or share or retweet or whatever. And suddenly, you know, that information is passed on again. So all the kind of concerns around Russian meddling in the elections. I'm currently watching the latest season of Homeland, which the the plot is all about exactly this, you know, encouraging um, innocent members of the population to pass on false information. And it's, it's a real problem. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to try and equip individuals, all of us, a little bit more. Um, with, with, with the tools, if you like, to uh, recognize some of these falsehoods, recognize where the truth we're being served is, is misleading or inaccurate in some way. Right. So that we don't just become innocent propagators of, of, of deception, of, of misinformation. Right. And at one point you also point out so rightly, I think this applies to just about all of us on the whole range of the political spectrum, on far too many issues, we hear only a small proportion of the available competing truths. That is, most of us like to retreat to that uh, that f- 
uh, sector of the of of the media that speaks the truth with which we are most comfortable. And uh, we need to be hearing uh, a, a wider span of truths. Uh, in the in the just couple of minutes that remain, I want you to at least be able to sketch for our listeners an idea of uh, w- what else you also explore in this book, namely the matters of artificial truths, subjective truths, and finally unknown truths. So let's start with that last one because we've talked a bit about predictions, but the other category of unknown truths I look at, which I think is is really interesting is beliefs and again some people feel a little bit queasy about treating beliefs as truth but of course if you talk to the you know more than a billion catholics most of them will say that the you know scripture is true that that these are these are truths being handed down by god and of course other religions too feel the same way about their holy texts so i thought it was important in the book to at least treat religious truths ideological truths as as equivalently important in the way they drive people's behavior and indeed can be misrepresented and misinterpreted. So we can look at how Al-Qaeda and ISIS, for example, have interpreted um, the Quran and, and Islamic teachings in ways that are very different from mainstream Islam with, with disastrous consequences for both America and the Middle East. Um, and we can, of course, look at how Christianity has various different versions of the, of, the, of the New Testament Gospels, which give different representations of Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. So I thought that was important to look at. But I think um, the last category I'd mention is um, within artificial truth. I also look at names, because I think this is really interesting, the, the labels <laughs> and names we give things. And I mention, I talk a little bit about things like the Patriot Act and Megan's Law, which are you know, pieces of legislation that were given such evocative names that however flawed they were, it was almost impossible to vote against them. And indeed, if you look at the voting record on Megan's law, I believe it was unanimous, um, unanimously passed in, in the Senate and the House. Um, it is a bit of a flawed piece of legislation, as has been r- reported recently in a number of media, but, but it's very hard to see how anyone could oppose something with a name like that, knowing the story that lies behind it. So names is a really interesting area of, of creating truth simply by the names and labels we give things. Ultimately, your, your book really helps us think about the truths that we take in as consumers and also about the ways in which we manipulate truth and utilize truth uh, our, ourselves. What kind of a difference has it made for you yourself personally, having thought about this so thoroughly and, and now written about it so extensively? Do you find yourself as both a communicator and as a consumer uh, changed in any significant way? I'm much more aware of the ethical dimension of what I do in my professional job now, having thought quite hard about what, you know, when it's reasonable to be selective with the truth and when it's reasonable to convey a certain impression that you know may not be the whole truth, which you know, is a big part of, of any professional communicator's job. So the ethical dimension, which I explore a little bit in the book, has really helped me. I think from the, on the other side, I'm, I hope I'm much less likely to fall for the kind of the, the, the misinformation and the misleading that, that I might have done before. I tell the story in the book about the picture that circulated on Twitter about three years ago of the all-male um, panel at the Women's International Conference, um, which got so much abuse for, for this ridiculous you know, image of this, all these men trying to mansplain to a women's conference. And it was a completely unfair picture. I, you know, the context 
was that they had been invited specifically uh, to, 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 to come to this women's conference to talk from the male, give the men's point of view on how to advance women in business. Um, but, you know, I, like everyone, when I saw that picture, was appalled by it until I saw the context. So I, I'm, I'm now a little bit, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, more careful to understand the context and to look at the different sides of the truth before I rush to judgment. Mm. And I hope that the truth, my book, will help people um, develop similar kind of tools and awareness that, that I've been learning over the last couple of years. Mm. The book again is Truth, How the Many Sides to Every Story Shape Our Reality, published by Little Brown and Company and the author Hector MacDonald. Hector MacDonald, thank you so much for writing such a timely and valuable book, and thank you for being part of the morning show today. I have enjoyed this. Thank you, Greg. It's been really enjoyable.